The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's Sports Podcast Hang Up and Listen for the week of January 28th, 2019. On this week's show, Courtney Nguyen of the WTA Insider and No Challenges Remaining podcast will be here to talk to us about Naomi Osaka, who backed up her bizarro win over Serena Williams at last year's U.S. Open with a triumph at the Australian Open. Louise Radnofsky of the Wall Street Journal will also chat with us about the new U.S. figure skating champions, 13-year-old Alyssa Liu and 19-year-old Nathan Chen, as well as former champion Gracie Gold and her battle with depression. Finally, Candace Buckner of The Washington Post will join the pod to share the deep and dark and smelly secrets of NBA players' feet. Joining me in our Washington, D.C. studio is Stefan Fatsis, author of the books, Word Freak, and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. Hey, Josh. Uh, who had the best feet in the Broncos locker room? Oof, you know what players would do? I can't remember whose feet exactly were the most disgusting, but what players would do is they would cut a little slit in the front of their cleats to allow more movement for the toes so they don't get jammed up quite as much as they would otherwise. Good uh, good tip. Everybody cut slits in your shoes right now. But the downside was when someone stepped on your foot and went right don't through cut, the slit. Don't it cut really slits painful, in your shoes. I was told. I want to do a little bit of uh, chit-chat about the Anthony Davis news that just uh, came out on Monday morning. He has requested a trade. And this is not one of those sources say – Rich Paul, his agent, talked to Woj and said he wants to be traded uh, for the record. So it is going to happen. He signed through 2020, but uh, he wants to – he told the team he's not going to sign an extension, and so they're going to deal him before then. I feel like, Stefan, this is going to be the ultimate test of the atomization of NBA fandom because my – Fandom of the Pelicans is different than for the Saints just because the Pelicans didn't exist when I was a kid. They're, so they're, they're the team in New Orleans, right? They are the team in, the, in New Orleans. So the team that employs Anthony Davis currently. Uh, and so uh, I root for them. I want them to succeed. And yet I also appreciate the fact that they haven't been able to surround Anthony Davis with enough talent to compete for uh, playoff glories. And so he uh, wants to go to a place where he can win a championship. Fair play. Um, but I feel like if he goes to the Lakers and plays with LeBron, I'm going to be all in, I'm going to be into that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's how I feel today. I don't know how I feel in practice, uh, how I'll, I'll feel in practice. But the kind of complicating factor is that as opposed to Kevin Durant leaving OKC, I feel like there's a legitimate chance that if he leaves and the the franchise just might not survive, they could actually move to Seattle or something, uh, just not exist in New Orleans. So there is a more existential issue. It's a crisis moment for you. Not for me. Uh, well, a little bit for you, but for New Orleans. What's interesting to me is, one, New Orleans seems to be a city that should be able to attract a slew of Max free agents. Because of gumbo? Because it's a desirable place to live. Um, you'd think that. But, of course, New York is also a desirable place to live. And yet the Knicks and the Nets have not been able to create 
It's not a desirable place to play basketball for marketing reasons. And if Anthony Davis had spent his career in a city that's more congenial marketing-wise, he would be a bigger star. I mean, it's – I honestly think for him he just wants to win titles and he's just not going to be able to do that. I Mm -hmm. I think there's been more than enough evidence that that's not going to happen for him in New Orleans. And I think that's the issue. And that's – how are you going to attract – free agents if you can't compete for titles. Well, what I was going to say if, was just that if it's if, a nice if, place to live, that doesn't seem to matter. Right. But it has to be in conjunction with 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 competent ownership that ha- shares that goal. I mean, you, you'd think that, again, the Knicks would, would be able to attract whoever they want because they can pay them whoever they want. But the Dolan family has been truly Why are we talking horrific. about the Knicks now? Well, to draw a parallel that it is not just, as you said – the city that is attractive. Ownership has to be willing to do this. Well, and I think in New Orleans, the ownership has been willing. It's just in practice, they've done a really shitty job. Shitty job. And some of it is their fault, and some of it is DeMarcus Cousins tearing his Achilles and just mm-hmm. bad luck. But uh, yeah. But to your other point, Josh, which is if Anthony Davis leaves, that you will be excited to watch him play with LeBron or with the Celtics or wherever he might end up. I didn't say the Celtics. <laughs> so really, I was going to say then it's about Anthony Davis and that you've become a real fan of his and you're, you're looking forward to him having that opportunity to win, but maybe not so much. Well, it's all, it's all conditional. No, but the rational thing for the Pelicans would to do would be to wait till the summer because for – arcane reasons the Celtics are not able to trade for him until the summer, whereas the Lakers could trade for him right now. And if they want to create a bidding war, they should wait. And Who's to, to say if they have an appetite to wait? But the Celtics can probably put together the best package for him. But yeah, I'd be more excited to watch him play with LeBron just because I like LeBron. Yeah. Um, so that is that. Uh, and we shall see. It's not Not the greatest two weeks in the history of New Orleans sports, <laughs> but we will uh, we we will uh, survive or not. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time: the roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May fifth. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. On Saturday in Melbourne, Australia, 21-year-old Naomi Osaka beat Petra Kvitova 7-6-5-7-6-4 to win her second consecutive Grand Slam title and become the first Asian man or woman to be the number one singles player in the world. Joining us now from Melbourne to discuss is Courtney Nguyen, who is the host of the Women's Tennis Association's WTA Insider podcast and the co-host of the podcast No Challenges Remaining. Welcome, Courtney. Hello. Hello, guys. Uh, I want to start by playing a clip from your interview with Naomi Osaka after she won the title. You guys were in a car together. You asked her about how her sister Mari and her mother reacted to her victory. Let's listen. Yeah, I mean, I called my mom after I did all the press. She didn't even say congratulations. She just yelled at me to go to sleep. So I felt really loved. Um, And then I called my sister when I got back to the hotel, and she was really, like, happy for me. So I was really, 
I don't know. Like, I, I really love talking to my sister. So. That is great material, Courtney. That's a good, that's a good <laughs> get. Um, just can you give us a little bit of a sense of what she's like um, as a person? Because at the U.S. Open, when she beats Serena Williams in perhaps the most awkward tennis match in history, as Serena, you know, was mixing it up with the chair umpire, Osaka looked to me like she wanted to crawl underneath the stadium. Uh, five months later, she's still she seems a little uncomfortable with fame still, and yet she's proved that she's this enormous superstar and that she's incredibly tough-minded. So what can you tell us about how all of that fits together? Yeah, I think you nailed it uh, right on the head in, in terms of just the toughness that I think continues to surprise us. I mean, I've been interviewing Naomi since she was 16 years old, and she's always been soft-spoken, very introverted, very shy, um, and just kind of very interior with just everything about her. Just doesn't give much away. So you end up projecting, and you end up just trying to fill the void and the mystery that uh, that surrounds her. And just in the way that she comports herself personally, it's very easy to think that she's too soft in a lot of ways, that she didn't have that tenacity that was needed to pull off what she's done now in the last two slams, especially in the circumstances in which she's done it. And it, it continues to surprise me. But I, I do remember a moment after she won the U.S. Open and the next day I interviewed her and I just happened to be standing, you know, with her agents and, and her team. And we just kind of all were saying, you know, maybe this kid is actually a lot stronger than we give her credit for, because what she had to deal with in New York, she will never have to yeah, deal yeah, with yeah. anything like that again. Her personality really is endearing, but now that she's won these two slams back to back, at some point, athletes become real big superstars and have well, to be. That point's already happened for her. <laughs> right, but they have to be public facing, and there's going to be a ton more attention and media and, and outward stuff that she's going to have to be a public figure. Is she, you know, is her team. Are they working on this? I mean, is this something that's important to them and to her? Or is this just the sort of organic process of someone growing up? It's curious because she does enjoy the interview process. She likes being you know, presented with questions that maybe she hasn't thought about before. And it just makes her think and kind of, um, I guess, discover herself in real time in a lot of ways. Um, so that part of it is okay. I think it's just the energy that is required. Uh, you know, to kind of do all that. And she is on the verge of global superstardom. I have no doubt she'll be, you know, number one on the Forbes list within two or three years in terms of the highest earning female athletes in the world. You know, Tokyo Olympics are coming up. So there's going to be a lot of demands and her, you know, sponsorship portfolio is only growing. And these are massive brands. These aren't, you know, little podunk brands here or there, Nishin, ANA, you know, all of those. So how she handles that is key, but her family is so good at grounding her and I think that she has the proper perspective with respect to it all, which is I just want to be a tennis player. I never got into this to be famous. So she knows that she has to win matches in order to back up all the other stuff. She definitely does seem to have a sense of humor in interviews, too, right? I mean, maybe it doesn't come through when she's standing on the court in front of thousands <laughs> of people and, um, you know, in, a, in, a, in an interview projected to millions watching. But uh, Ben Rothenberg had a piece in The Times back in 2016 when she was 16 years old. Courtney's uh, podcast partner. The great Ben <laughs> I know him well. <laughs> and you may have even been there for this interview um, where she responded to a question about what she, you know, what she wanted to accomplish. And she said to be the very best like no one ever was. And then when there was no recognition from Ben or whoever else was in the room, she said, oh, that's a Pokemon quote. So that's kind of <laughs> funny. 
Oh, she's hilarious. I mean, she's made she's dropped Meek Mill references in um, in press conferences with respect to not getting wanting to get pasted by the same opponent back to back. She's, you know, drops these pop culture references, gaming references in her press conferences all the time. She's very funny, very self-deprecating. And you're right. It, it never comes across in her 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 uh, on court um, trophy ceremonies, to be fair, she's only won three titles. She doesn't have a lot of experience (laughs) in those as of, as of right now, but, uh, but that'll come. And I think that with her, there's just something very natural and very authentic with what she brings to the table stardom wise. And even from the U S open to now, she really didn't change. I mean, I talked to her right at the new year when she was competing in Brisbane and she was the same Naomi as she was six months ago. Um, so I just I just haven't seen it, you know, shift her off her off her axis. I mean, we want to create a storyline of forward progress. And she's, I think, even talked about this idea that she's matured. Um, she said about, you know, Brisbane that she acted childish in a, a match that she had lost. And I feel like after, she beat Kvitova in this final. There was this notion that she had matured and that she had gotten mentally stronger as if in like a week you can <laughs> go from being <laughs> immature to mature. I think the reality is that for all athletes, no matter how old they are, sometimes, and we've seen this with uh, the great Serena Williams, some weeks you got a bad week, some weeks you got a good week. And maybe it's like kind of a scatter plot, and it sort of, starts pointing upwards, but I just don't, I don't want her, I don't want us to kind of put her in the bucket of, oh, look how much more mature she is since the US Open. Because as you said, maybe the story here is that basically she's the same person and that's a good, that's a really good person to be. She's the same person who is maturing both on and off the court. I mean, even in the Kvitova match. But I just said maybe she's not maturing, Stefan. You just undermined me. No, but she is as as the way humans mature when they're 21 years old. She is human. She is human. I mean, even in the Kvitova match, you know, there was a point there when she had those three match points in the second set, lost the set, and the you know the the theme among the announcers was, oh, she could be having a losing it here. She's looking very immature and she's really kicking herself, and you can see how down she is. And then she rallied, so our narrative worked. She found her inner resolve and look how mature she is, you know, winning that third set and taking the championship. Yeah, I mean, she was in tears at the end of that second set. I mean, to say that she has completely become this fully formed, perfect champion, you know, within the span of five months is is definitely not the narrative. She has those petulant moments. She's still 21 years old and dealing with the pressure and the stakes at, at, and everything. And, and she, she cried as she walked off the court after that second set, after blowing it. And the fact that she's able to pull it together is really, I think, the biggest, um, probably correct uh, viewing of Naomi Osaka, which is that she's an incredibly fast learner. The lessons that she takes, um, she applies them very quickly. And that's what her coach and her team and her physical trainer all say. She's incredibly teachable. She's, she takes it all in and processes it and applies it very, very quickly. And she had learned that she could kind of be this, you know, this player who could win multiple slams. She didn't really accept that until after she won 
the U.S. Open, because when she won the Indian Wells, her first big title, she completely slumped. She disappeared for about four months of the season, and it wasn't. And she didn't reemerge until New York. But she said, after New York, I went and I made the final in Tokyo. I made the semifinal in Beijing. I, you know, made another semifinal at the start of this year in Brisbane. Now that I'm playing consistently, now I believe it. Let's talk about the pecking order and women's tennis. Very much conversation about how uh, there had been eight consecutive slams, one by different women. Uh, one way to look at that is, uh, why, why is there no dominance at the top of the game? The way that I prefer to look at it, at it is, there's a lot of incredibly good players in women's tennis right now. Um, and the fact that Osaka was able to win two in a row is crazy, given the strength at the top of the game. Um, I'm curious for your insight into how the players themselves perceive the pecking order, because I'd have to imagine that Serena losing that 5-1 lead to Pliskova in the quarterfinals, losing match points in just a totally unanticipated and bizarre way, that that must have had some effect on the field, um, given that Serena is obviously still the, the alpha in the sport. Yeah, she's definitely still the alpha in the sport. And I think that Simona Halep was the previous number one, said it perfectly, which, you know, she was set to play Serena in the round of 16. And she said, look, I'm the number one player. She's the best player in the world. We all know that. Like, there was no defensiveness from Simona at all. And I think that is how the locker room sees it. But I think over time, since Serena's come back and she's taken these losses, you know, in the slam finals, also at the tour level, a bit of the aura has cracked to where I think the players probably think, look, on any given day, Serena beats any of us six love, six love. None of us would be surprised. But when it comes to tournaments and needing to do it five straight times, six straight times and at the slams, seven straight times, there's a little bit more of a feeling that the gap has closed with respect to Serena. And I think Halep taking Serena to three sets in a match that many thought was going to be a blowout and really pushing her was a bit of a sign of that depth, that this is our world number one, who people think is mismatched in that matchup, and she's still able to bring it. Pliskova then following on two days later and coming back and, and, and being able to get that win, that's a big win as well. So I think Serena is still at the top of the pecking order, and she is the alpha of the tour. But I do think that there is this peloton of 15, 20 players behind, you know, at the top of the game who are right there that she's going to have to continue to go through in succession as she chases this number 24, number 25, tries to, you know, get that all-time record. So it's the gap is definitely closed. Um, and, and she doesn't, I think, in the locker room seem as invincible as maybe she once was. Let's take a few minutes to talk about Petra Kvitova, who played very well in that final and throughout the tournament. Um, it's been a little more than two years since she was robbed in her apartment in the Czech Republic and stabbed in her left hand. She's a left-handed player. Um, it's been a remarkable and inspirational comeback for uh, for her. And sort of like how Nadal said in his um, you know post-defeat uh, on-court uh, speech, it was a genuine moment of being happy to be there and taking pride in the journey. And I would have to imagine if we're talking about sentiment in the locker room, um, that this is somebody that her peers really, really, really root for. 
Petra was for sure the sentimental favorite going into the final. Um, and she has been, you know, really since she, she came back at the French Open, you know, two years ago. Um, what happened, you know, in December 2016 in her home definitely rocked the locker room. She's so beloved, so well, you know, respected. Her game is incredible when it's on. I mean, it's up there with Serena easily as being the best game in women's tennis when she's when she's clicking on all cylinders. So, you know, watching her battle back and obviously to heal the physical scars is one thing. If people want to go on the Internet and see the actual photos, I mean, it, it was brutal what had happened to her left hand but also the emotional scars. And, you know, she's a public figure. She has to go and travel globally and be in airports and, you know, walk out on the court and um, play in front of huge crowds and walk through huge crowds. How she's managed that as well after what happened to her has really just been incredibly inspiring and stunning. Josh, you mentioned that guy, Rafael Nadal, who lost in the finals. You didn't mention who won. It's a guy <laughs> named uh, Novak Djokovic. Um, my boy Tsitsipas, Stefanos Tsitsipas, failed to make the final. The final was a blowout. Uh, Djokovic just demolished Nadal straight sets. What was it? 3-2-4. Um, how overpowering was he during this tournament? And Very. And also, <laughs> you, know, you talk about comebacks, both Djokovic and Nadal had been sort of written off. Like this maybe was the end for them last year because of injuries. And yet here they were in the final doing their dominant things um, in the face of what everyone wants to believe is the rise of the new generation on the men's side. Yeah, I mean, the new generation is coming. They're, they're closing that gap. But uh, I mean, those two, what they did throughout the fortnight to get to the final. I mean, Rafa was absolutely wiping the floor with everyone. It was one of the most dominant slam runs that I've seen from him definitely off clay um, to make the final. But um, everybody thought that because he was playing so well, Rafa, that, oh, okay, he's he's the favorite into that final. But at the end of the day, this sport is so much about X's and O's. And, you know, just the looking at somebody's form isn't always the the indicator. But Novak seems to just have Rafa's number on hard courts, just the way that his backhand measures up against Rafa's left-handed forehand. He's able to pick it apart. And that was one of, I mean, those two have played over 50 times in their career. And I have, I've never seen something like that, what Novak did to Rafa in that final. I mean, that was beyond a blowout. It was um, devastating. And um, it was great to see them both in that final. But you, you kind of leave Melbourne thinking, oh my gosh, like Novak could... I mean, he could feasibly run the table if, if, if this is where things are standing right now and if Rafa doesn't close that gap quickly. Um, so I think it, he'll probably be fine at the French Open. Just uh, <laughs> just my guess, but uh, you never we'll know. See. You never know with Novak with Novak around there hanging out. But uh, but yeah, even if Rafa though gets the French Open, I mean, Novak will have perfectly big chances of, of getting Wimbledon and the U.S. Open, and then you start opening up that exhausting GOAT debate uh, when it comes to to major titles won and whether or not he can catch Roger, who's at 20, so and Novak's at 15 now. So it's an interesting time. Thank you for nourishing our sensations, uh, Courtney. <laughs> uh, Courtney is the host of the WTA Insider Podcast and the co-host with Ben Rothenberg of the podcast No Challenges Remaining. Appreciate your time. Thank you very much, guys. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, 
and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Before we get to our figure skating conversation with Louise Radnofsky, I want to let you know that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we'll be talking about hockey with our hockey-loving producer, Patrick. We will chat about the women in the skills competition of the NHL All-Star Game and whether it's time to get Connor McDavid out of Edmonton. But Edmonton is so lovely this time of year. Anyway, uh, to hear that conversation, join Slate Plus. It's just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. When Ethel Muckelt of Great Britain won the bronze medal in figure skating at the 1924 Winter Olympics, she was 38 years and 246 days old. Or to put it another way, she was five years and 178 days, if I did the math right, older than the two current U.S. champions combined. They are Nathan Chen, who on Sunday won his third national title at 19 years and 267 days old, and Alyssa Liu, who won her first one on Friday at all of 13 years and 169 days. Louise Radnofsky covers figure skating for the Wall Street Journal. That is when she's not covering immigration. She is with us here in Slate's Washington studios. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Alyssa Liu became the youngest American ladies champion ever, dethroning Tara Lipinski, who won it in 1997 at age 14, and I don't know how many days. Lipinski also called Liu's winning performance for NBC Sports and did not sound unhappy in the least to lose her youngest ever title. Let's listen. Do not forget this name. Alyssa Liu. Alyssa Liu. Eight triples, two axles, two lutzes. Russia, Japan, you paying attention? America's got one too. That was straight man Terry Gannon sending out the warning to Russia and Japan. Louise, you wrote about this in the journal over the weekend. Those countries churn out barely teen figure skating stars. That hasn't been the case for the United States, has it? The United States has certainly turned out barely teen skaters, but the star quality that you're seeing with Alyssa Liu and with the Russians is in the quality of the jumps and the caliber of the jumps that they're doing. You don't have to understand figure skating in depth to understand this. These are really big jumps. These are really big jumps that a handful of elite men are doing, maybe on a good day. And so when you see them from a 13-year-old girl, you would naturally be really excited to see that. The thing that I don't quite understand, and I'm hoping that you can explain, is that uh, the triple axel in particular in women's skating has been something that only the best of the best have been able to perform. Tanya Harding famously was able to do it at a time in the 90s when nobody else could. And the explanation then was that she was so powerful. And yet you look at Alyssa Liu, you would not... Um, She's four foot seven. <laughs> powerful is not the first adjective that comes to mind. So how physiologically is she able to do this when so many other skaters from her country and other countries have not been able to? So the answer that Americans have found with Alyssa Liu is good technique. They see her triple axel potentially being sustainable even when she's not four foot seven anymore. But Tanya Harding's a really great example. There are different ways you can do a triple axel. You see that in the men's competition too. There are some body types that do it a certain way and there are other body types that do it a different way. So you don't have to be tiny. But if your technique 
and this is the criticism that Americans have anyway of the Russian skaters, if your technique is built on you being tiny, then when you stop being tiny, you're not going to have a triple axel anymore. You're not going to have a quad lutz, which is the thing that people are really psyched about for the Russians. And the Russians, you mentioned, uh, there was a 14-year-old who landed a quad lutz and a quad toe loop, triple toe loop combination at a junior event in September. There was another Russian who did a quad lutz. Um, Do these people have names or they're just well, nameless, faceless Russian I was, I was going bots. there because I was, I was not mentioning their names deliberately because they're not the names we've heard of and they may not be the names that become world champions. Um, as you pointed out in your journal piece, Louise, there is this assembly line of Russian skaters and where in the United States, we're like, ooh, Alyssa Liu, oh my God, the hope for the future, the next Christy Yamaguchi, the next whoever. In Russia, they may not even win the national title next year. That's even more reason to name their names now. When they have their brief moment in the sun, Anna Sharbakova and Alexandra Trusova, I'm going to name you. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's correct. There was a period about two or three years ago when the Russian women were just – or the Russian girls were so powerful that uh, – the year of the Russian lady was the best way of encapsulating that. But again, you didn't have to pick the right name of the Russian lady because it could have been any one of six. And that's where their strength comes from. It can any year be any one of six. And so what's the explanation for why um, girls and women are able to um, do these jumps now in terms of technique? Is it better coaching? Is it that one person figured it out and that knowledge kind of percolated around the world? There's definitely – a sense in figure skating where if somebody does something one year, five people will pull it out the next year. And last year was really – there have been a couple of breakthrough years for triple axles, but last year was really a big year for triple axles. Mariah Nagasu, who is not four foot seven, did it for the United States at the Olympics. Uh, and you have a bunch of triple axles coming out of Japan and Russia and now the United States and women's figure skating again this year. So they, they seem to be proliferating. And tell us why the triple axle is – is so difficult. Short version is that every figure skating jump is one revolution apart from the axle, which is one and a half revolutions because it takes off from the front. So a triple axle isn't three revolutions in the air. It's three and a half revolutions in the air. Um, in gymnastics, Simone Biles is the greatest because she can do things that other gymnasts can't do. But she's also the greatest because sort of as you were alluding to, she does things and then other gymnasts are able to do it maybe a year or two later. Um, and I don't know if it's a psychological thing where there's some sense that this thing can't be done. And then once somebody proves that it can be done, then the floodgates open. Do you think that's part of it? Dick Button and I had a conversation about him being the first guy to do a triple loop and how he broke the trip. Well, he broke the triple barrier with the triple loop. And then the next year, everybody rushed out. Of the the Chuck Yeager of uh, some, skating. Something <laughs> like that. But it's funny you mentioned Simone Biles because I wrote a cautionary piece about Simone Biles in, gosh, 2015, maybe, saying the trouble with getting excited about Simone Biles, stop me if you've heard this one before, is that she has to be this good in 2016, which in her case was the Olympic right. year. And that's a really hard thing to do. And of course, Simone Biles, because she's Simone Biles, absolutely did that. So I don't have to pour cold water on Alyssa she might be the Simone Biles. Um, do we have a clip, Stefan, of Alyssa Liu crying after uh, her amazing performance oh, in the free skate? Ab absolutely, we do. That's what you think about the potential for her to become. Her score right, here you go. for the free skate, 143.62. Her total score, 217.51. Look at disbelief. She is currently in first place. 
Look at that number. Look at the lead. Louise, I mean, Alyssa Liu was, look, she's 13. She's prepubescent. Um, this is a little girl. But at the same time, this is an incredible athlete who works like the Russians and the Japanese kids that are essentially professional figure skaters at a very, very young age. That emotion was remarkable. And I think partly it's – I think in Russia there's an expectation that the 13, 14, 15, and 16-year-olds are going to be champions. They are bred to believe that. Do you think Alyssa Liu had that same sort of um, uh, approach inculcated in her in her training that you can go out and win this this weekend in Detroit? Well, her coaching strategy is really interesting. She is too young to represent the United States at the junior international competitions, let alone the senior international competitions. She won't be age eligible to compete for the United States at the senior level, including at the Olympics, until 2022, the Olympic year. So what do you do if you have a 13-year-old skater and you're really ambitious and you're barred from competing at that level? What her coach decided to do was put her in for her toughest official outing this year at U.S. Senior Nationals because she was age eligible to compete there. So so it's an approach they're definitely taking to keep getting her these, this kind of exposure and these kind of opportunities. And the question is whether it will be the best thing that she ever did because she's able to ride it for three years or it'll burn her out. Seems like you're feeding into this uh, jingoism a little bit. Stefan. I don't know if it's jingoism. I do think you it's f- an approach to, to, to sports in these countries. But do we feel like the U.S. is actually more humane than Russia and Japan no. in turn, churning out young skaters and gymnasts? I'm not suggesting they're more humane. I'm suggesting that they're more effective. The United States definitely realized in the last few years that if they were going to compete, they needed to have their kids doing the kind of big jumps that the Russian girls were doing. The setting aside the issue of whether it's humane, the weakness of the U.S. system, if you're solely interested in medals, is that if you've only got one person, then you don't have the dominance that the Russians and the Japanese have because the reason that the Russians and the Japanese dominate in figure skating in the men's and sing- men's and ladies' singles is that they go one, two, they would go one, two, three, possibly on a good day. They're competing against themselves for the top spots and no other country is in the system. Their nationals are harder in some ways than international events. That's where you want to be. And that's not the case in the United States right now. You've got Alyssa Liu. Do you feel like there's any connection between the age eligibility rules in skating and the fact that there has been – there hasn't been this overarching, extremely upsetting scandal like there is in USA Gymnastics um, in terms of – you know. If U.S. gymnastics uh, has been more successful than even Russian skating or Japanese skating, it has been a powerhouse. And it's been a powerhouse because, I think, in large part, the abuse of these young girls. I also write about gymnastics, and I want to be careful here. I think that there are differences between the two sports, but there are dynamics about U.S. gymnastics that absolutely made them very effective and world dominant that simultaneously fed into creating a perfect breeding ground for that kind of abuse to happen. And that's absolutely worth bearing in mind for for any sport that is trying to replicate that U.S. model for gymnastics. Let's talk a little bit about Nathan Chen, who won the men's singles uh, gold medal 
in a performance that was just, I mean, he crushed everybody. I mean, this was Tiger at his peak, LeBron at his peak. This was, this was a transcendent. There were fist pumps. So <laughs> he was so much better than anybody. And it was obvious even to viewers like me who tune in to watch figure skating when there's some big event going on. Um, it was beautiful. I mean, how did you, and, and it was recognized as beautiful. Um, Lipinski and Johnny Weir and Terry Gannon. I mean, it was, they were basically groaning or Orgasmically from Chen's first jump. And then they stopped talking, which was yes. really smart. Yes. Because I that is that absolutely well. how you want to watch Nathan Chen's program. It was outstanding. And I think if you saw Nathan Chen compete for a couple of seconds at the Olympics, the last time you were tuning in, you really missed out on this version of Nathan Chen because Nathan Chen had a miserable short program. Then, because he actually said, screw it, he went out and landed six quads in the long program. But if you weren't watching, you didn't see that. And the guy that you saw out there, this weekend in Detroit was that that guy, that guy who could absolutely be the next Olympic champion, who could have been the last Olympic champion. But it doesn't really matter. You just want to watch him on any day do this kind of thing. And it's fantastic. Yeah, this guy's an underachiever, too. I mean, he's a freshman at Yale, took a course, full course load, practiced uh, skating on his own an hour and a half a day while FaceTiming with his coach if he needed help. <laughs> Which might be the best thing for him. I mean, we'll, we'll see over the next few years whether this works. But he was doing the intense thing before. It got him right to the top of the world. And now, you know what? He feels like he's earned a chance to be a student too. So am I to understand then that Chen is not a part of any sort of American system that could where his success could be replicated? He's basically doing this on his own, and there's not really anybody he's working with or who he's coming up with that would suggest that he'll be part of some lineage here? Well, so the American system in gymnastics was to bring in all the athletes for a monthly training camp and really allow them to remain at home with their home coaches, but supervise them incredibly closely at the national level. With figure skating, it's much more loose than that. Uh, but U.S. figure skating does keep an eye on its athletes. It does have them in for regular camps. It does select who goes to competitions. And it does try to send a signal to the athletes down the food chain what it is that they want to see. There are things you can do with judging at national championships to incentivize certain things that are outside of the normal judging system, like bigger jumps. You can really incentivize kids to try bigger jumps than they're ready for because you just think that one day they'll be able to do them. It is so interesting how different things seem to work for different sports because in tennis, the only thing that's ever worked is kind of crazed, maniacal individual coaches working on their own with their athletes. And the U.S. has tried to bring athletes together at training centers and create this sort of systematized approach, and it just has not worked at all. Um, but I'm not really sure why why it would be so different. Though America different did sports. have a, a Danielle Collins made what the semifinals in Australia, and she was a, a former college champion. She was. There are exceptions in general. Uh, maybe I shouldn't have said never worked, but the thing that has worked uh, consistently across the sport, across countries, yeah. is the sort of individual maniacal approach. So let's talk about Gracie Gold, who was the star. Um, American woman figure skater of um, the 2014 Olympic cycle, right? Um, and there was a story in the New York Times by Karen Krauss about Gold, how she'd um, become very depressed and had fallen out of the sport and is trying to make her way back. What did you think of that piece? And what did you think of what have you thought of uh, Gold's story? I thought the story was absolutely terrific, and it was terrific because it seemed to ring true to people who saw this happening. Now, I'm 
obviously the person to whom it has to ring the most true is Gracie Gold. But to those of us who interviewed her after she had this really terrible moment at the 2016 World Championships on home ice in Boston, there was a sense in Boston that she was at a crossroads and that the perfectionism that she talked about in interviews that drove her was also what had got her into the difficulty she was there. She had a a stumble on her opening jump in the free program. She was coming in from first place. She had the chance to win the world title. And after the stumble in the free program, she didn't have a chance to win the world title anymore. But if she had kept up the rest of the program like a non-perfectionist and sort of put it aside, she probably could have meddled. And I think she knew that and she made that very well, she didn't know it at the time, but I think other people knew that. And it was really clear from the way she was talking afterwards that she didn't quite grasp that. The perfectionism was really getting in the way, not just of her skating, but of something even more important, which is her life. I mean, the story in The Times is, I mean, it is harrowing. Gold's mental health issues were severe. She talks about having locked herself in her house with the lights off for 24 hours at a time, unable to leave, binge eating. She was later diagnosed with an eating disorder. She put on 50 pounds. Um, the, the one question I had, and, and this sort of, I think, relates to how these elite athletes in these Olympic sports, particularly the women in gymnastics and possibly figure skating, can be treated. It, there were the warning signs. If you saw them in Boston after a difficult performance, she has coaches. She has a support system. She has a team around her. And yet it seemed like this wasn't getting handled, that she was allowed to fall into these depths. Well, we asked Ashley Wagner, who was a a very close rival of hers, uh, at that competition what she thought. And Ashley seemed to understand, too, what was going on in a way where she said, look, I I think she will figure out what happened for her today and she will be – able to rise above it. She was really rooting for her rival because she could recognize the depths of the the disorder thinking, I guess, that had led her rival to feel so lousy, not just about the performance, but about herself. And it turns out from the Times piece as well that Ashley Wagner did say something to U.S. skating officials a few months later. So it was very apparent to her. I think the version you'll get from U.S. figure skating officials, and full disclosure, I haven't done a lot of in-depth reporting on this in the last six months, but I think the version you'll get from U.S. officials is that they tried to help. The, the, the Gold family might say that they didn't feel like the help was appropriate. But, you know, somewhere along the lines, for whatever reason, this didn't work out. Well, this, the, the, the in, this early intervention Karen, didn't really Karen work Krauss out. Karen Krauss spoke to the president of the U.S. figure sk- of U.S. figure skating at the time. And he says that um, attempts to assist Gold went nowhere. Quote, I don't know if being more forceful with Gracie would have worked just because she was in such denial. And that's alarming to me that, A, you would go on the record and say something like that, um, and B, throw it back on the athlete. Yeah, I think um, it's a as, – as you were just saying, I think it's tough because we don't have the reporting here necessarily to support any particular theory about what happened. But you would like to think that there would have been more intervention and that there would have been more – folks to help her and she wouldn't have had to descend into these kinds of depths. But, um, you know, Gold talks very frankly about how the same kind of uh, perfectionism that drove her to, you know, fourth place in the Olympics and U.S. championships kind of became her 
undoing. And I think we've seen that when so many athletes, um, it's kind of the sad, you know, opposite sides of the same coin. And with skating, it's particularly rough, I think, because so much of her reputation was tied up in her beauty, in her grace. Mm -hmm. People compared her to Grace Kelly, and then she tried to embody that persona. And then I think once maybe the cracks started to show, um, she just felt like she couldn't live up to that. And it just led to her spiraling and getting into this really dark place. But what's really interesting about Gracie Gold now, she's been very outspoken on Twitter uh, and, and other forms of social media that I can't quite keep up with. Uh, she People like who Gracie Gold is now. I think they hope that Gracie Gold likes who Gracie Gold is now um, or that she will one day. But, you know, the support that is out there for her to do whatever she chooses to do from here is really huge. And there are people who definitely hope that'll be skating and whatever kind of skating she wants to do. Or people who just think that she could probably bring that perfectionist drive, hopefully being a little kinder to herself in the process, to anything that she chooses to do. Well, they really al- like her for her. She's already made a gigantic contribution by being so public about her struggle and about her recovery and that she wants to keep skating. She, The, the Times piece describes how she has lost some weight. She's, dropped, she's lost 30 more pounds from, from her peak. She's attempted to – she's back on the rink. She is training. So it still wants to be part of her life. Absolutely. And if she coaches with that, if she competes with that, if she commentates with that, there's any number of things she could do. And I think she'd be brilliant at any of them. Louise Radnovsky is a reporter for The Wall Street Journal. She covers figure skating in her part time when she is not covering immigration. Previously covered the Trump White House as well. This is a nice break for you, I guess. Thank you so much. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Congratulations are in order for our next guest because Candace Buckner's recent story in the Washington Post about the pedicure revolution in the NBA is a lock for the American Podiatric Medical Association's Story of the Year Award. I don't really know if the American Podiatric Medical Association has a Story of the Year Award, but how could you not honor a work of journalism that begins with Orlando Magic point guard DJ Augustin analyzing the water temperature for an exfoliating seaweed scrub bath for his feet? Candace Buckner covers the Washington Wizards for The Post. Hey, Candace, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me and recognizing the most important piece of journalism I've ever done. Absolutely. Um, For those who may not be familiar with why you may have written about NBA players getting pedicures, I'm going to just say it's because basketball players, like many other athletes, have absolutely disgusting feet. And we'll get into how disgusting and why in a minute. But first, tell us what made you decide to report on the feet of the NBA, Candace. Well, uh, you're, you're right uh, on that one. I'm, I'm in locker rooms all the time for my job because I cover the Washington Wizards. And I've been uh, covering the NBA for about seven seasons now. And so when you're around, you see these guys um, sans shoes, and it's not a pretty sight most of the time. So I started, I started you know, just, you know, looking at them. <laughs> I don't want to sound like I'm... You can't turn your head, right? 
Yeah, so yeah. I started looking it's at these, uh, these guys' feet, um, but but also, you know, just having random conversations with them. Just uh, I, I learned that a lot of them get pedicures, mostly in the summertime when they have time, but um, during the season when the feet get when the feet, you know, really get worn and, and, and torn from all the um, the play, um, yet they're, they're obviously their feet take a beating. So I wanted to kind of examine um, how NBA players, these multimillionaires, take care of uh, the the, uh, the, uh, the the tool that really helps them in their job, their feet. I mean, the thing that's so remarkable when you look at, for example, a photo of LeBron James's feet and they're like on different vertical planes like the the little toe is stacked on top of the other toes it's it's not only just weird looking but it's hard to actually understand how you can not only be the you know best player in the world one of the greatest athletes ever but like how could you actually walk (laughs) Yeah, yeah, he's he's one of the most agile and graceful people, and you know, you look at his size. He's he's essentially a linebacker, but he's doing things that that no other NBA player in the history of the game has done. Like how can, how do you even find balance with that? I, and I'm looking at the picture now. Thank you guys very much for sending me this. But the baby toe is is riding on top of the other toe. The 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 big toe is. Is pretty much anchoring the rest of the foot. It's I can't describe it. It's it's so gnarly. You talked to uh, the Wizards uh, team podiatrist, and I think yeah, it's important so, to pause here and say that the Wizards uh, have a, a, of, uh, yeah. Oh, he's the incoming president of of what? Of the uh, don't have it in front of me, but the 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 national organization of. Um, Podiatry. Well, congratula- congratulations name, to him. Yeah. Um, and one thing he pointed out that I thought was interesting is that particularly in basketball, players wear new shoes a lot. They don't actually break in shoes the way uh, athletes in other sports might. I um, mean, I don't know whether that's because of shoe deal issues or because they just want to look good on the court. They wear out the soles. They or? wear out the soles quickly. I don't know. Or just wear out part of it because of the wear and tear. But as, uh, as you explained in the story, the shoes don't break in. The skin around the foot then grows these thick layers to absorb the successive stopping and starting on the court. And you get a lot of calluses from that um, and ingrown toenails and I guess deformities then evolve. But the whole thing with the new shoes was interesting to me. I never thought of that uh, aspect as well. And I do think it, it is because uh, also being in a locker room, you just see boxes upon, upon boxes upon boxes in these guys' stalls, and that's given to them by their uh, sponsor. So, for example, Jeff Green is sponsored by Jordan Brand, and inside the Wizards' home locker room, he needs essentially um, a whole stall next to him that he's not even using to hold his shoes. Um, Markeith Morris has the corner locker room. I'm sorry, the corner stall in the locker room, and so he uses the back wall to hold all of his shoes. And so these guys, they get all these new shoes, and... um, and it's it's not because they're wearing them out. It's just they want. I guess they just want to wear them, and they have them. The, their companies are just sending them to them, so they want to essentially wear a new pair of shoes almost every game. And I didn't realize that 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 would cause um, problems with the feet. But apparently, according to uh, Howard Osterman, it does. So players are very insecure <laughs> about their feet. Was it Lavoy Allen who told you hell now when you? <laughs> when you when you asked if uh, if you could talk to him about his feet, does that um, 
Did that make it challenging to report this out? I mean, in your job, you kind of need to build rapport with with these guys, get, hopefully get them to open up to you and tell you stuff that they're not giving to to other writers was asking about feet a good way to go about getting doing that or a bad way to build rapport? You know, it's, it's funny because I, I told the story in um, a follow-up that I did with our editor for the Washington Post newsletter, and most of these guys I'm meeting for the first time, and I'm meeting them for the first time before a game. So that's not the most... Um, yeah, that's not the optimal time to come up to a guy and say, hey, let's talk about your feet. But it was funny. Everyone that I did talk to, and I, I tried to locate the ones who, um, who, who were not wearing socks or hiding, or, or hiding their feet. So clearly, you know, if, if their feet are out, then maybe they don't have a problem with it. But every single person that I talked to, and there were so many other NBA players I didn't get a chance to fit into the story, um, you know, when the topic of feet came up, pretty much met with a giggle, uh, a look down, and then a, a glance up at me, and pretty much the same thing, Every the first response from every guy, yeah, I got to get a pedicure. So um, they didn't have a problem, they didn't have a problem um, you know, talking about the, the act, um, but it did bring out some giggles and some, some blushing, which I, I find just hilarious um, that these, these guys, before a game, would be so you know, open about, Uh, talking about pedicures and their feet. Well, that's what I loved about the story, too, is that once you got guys talking about it, it's wonderful. It's sort of like when you talk to athletes, one of the great things that that they do is – they love talking about what they do, right? They're experts mm-hmm. in playing basketball or baseball or any sport. So you get them talking about the the technicalities of their craft, and they open up. And I think it's the same here with the pedicure. Some of these guys have really developed a very fine sense of, of what makes a good pedicure and what are optimal times for them to have pedicures, both as treatments but also psychologically. A couple of guys said that they really only feel comfortable going with their wives, couple of other guys are much more open about sort of bringing others into the fold. You quoted Harry Giles, the third of the Sacramento Kings, who likes the jelly pedicure. But he also surprised a bunch of Sacramento fathers with gift certificates for a spa day as part of what is it called? The King's season of doing good events. So he's totally into being an evangelist for, for, for the, the, the male pedicure. Yeah, and actually, on um, we had a we had a uh, freelance photographer out there to capture that day when he surprised the dad. So he got a pedicure with those ten dads, um, pampered with cookies and and I don't know if they had the wine. And typically, if you go to a good nail shop, they have they have uh, wine on tap. But um, I don't know if they got that that deep. But it it was a day of pampering with these dads who obviously who had never um, stepped in, stepped into a nail shop before and and got pampered like that. But I will say, kind of going back to when you say, uh, you know, the best times, these, these, these athletes know the best times, I was just so surprised that most of them, most of the places that I did talk to, they all, they said, yeah, definitely uh, in the summertime. Now, DeAndre Jordan, he says he goes, you know, twice a week, uh, obviously. Um, um, DJ Augustine was a little bit different because he has uh, a wife and kids at home, but he tries to get his pedicures done when he's on the road and not so much um, always at home because he's, he's busy. But um, for, for the guys to say, oh, you know, there's, there's so much going on, um, I, just, I, I just don't have time until the summer, um, what the uh, Osterman was telling me, he wouldn't be surprised that moving forward more teams 
won't will offer that uh, that service as a pedicure. And um, obviously, the Orlando Magic had a spa day for for their players and staff. I understand that the Philadelphia 76ers, not so much this year, but in the past, they have had spa days. So, and and the Atlanta Hawks, they 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 don't offer it, but their training staff tells the players who to go to for their pedicures. But I, I, I just wouldn't be surprised in the coming years you, you would find, like, a, a team pedicurist on staff, just like you have a, a masseuse or um, uh, I don't want to say a trainer. I just say that it's, it's that important, but um, I, I, I just totally wouldn't be surprised if there's a, a team pedicurist on staff um, in the coming years for some of these teams. All right, since Stefan really, really wants to do it, and we want to make Stefan happy, happy, I wanted to talk about this uh, slideshow before we go. Um, 17, <laughs> 17 gnarly sports feet you cannot unsee. This is some great internet, uh, internet chum. The one that's by far the craziest, in my view, is slide number four, which is Daryl Armstrong. Oh, and, okay, let me get there. And this image was captured by uh, Dirk Nowitzki, in a, a tweet from 2017, and he writes, DA, yeah. ca- DA, <laughs> DA calls me Big Mummy, but he is working with these dinosaur toes. Oh and this God. image shows um, the toe. I don't know the, the like toe terminology, but the one next to the big toe is literally stacked pointer toe. on top <laughs> On top of the big toe, and it looks like he only has four toes. And the big toe is... It's weird as hell. ...curved, is bent underneath the pointer toe at the, you know, seven. Have you ever... Angle. Have you seen an NBA foot like this before, Candace? Never. And Daryl Armstrong has had, has had a very long uh, career, and I think he's now coaching with the Mavericks, so he that's like two decades worth of... And, and and even going back to probably you know high school and 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 amateur, that's like three decades worth of trauma. I've yeah. never seen anything like that. No, and and if we can stop now, that would be great, gentlemen. Well, go back to <laughs> you saying Bolt's toes look like she somebody stop, ran. Stephen. I don't care. You're being rude. Somebody ran a cheese grater over his feet because those are disgusting. <laughs> as fast as he is, yeah, that's just, he looks right? like his feet are ninety years old. Yeah, I mean. On the one hand, it's um, it's it's amusing. <laughs> On the other hand, I feel really bad for these guys because, um, as I'm sure you you've experienced, having foot pain really fucks you up. It's like not uh, it it can it can ruin your day. It can it can ruin your uh, your game, presumably. So I don't know if this is going to increase my respect. For NBA players, uh, or or what? But uh, it's like it's trauma. It is trauma. But it also helps you appreciate just what elite athletes do to their bodies in order to be able to do what they do every day. I agree, and <laughs> um, I I think it was DJ Augustine. Um, I forgot the exact diagnosis, but he did have a problem with his feet that could have been cured with a pedicure. It could have been, you know, helped um, um, with a pedicure. And he actually did miss a couple games. So he said, um, um, you know, that's pretty much what really got him going, is that you, don't, you can have a manageable injury, and the pain could be so bad that it will make you miss a game, but why not just get it taken care of um, the way that, you know, 
I would, you know, someone like me or you. I don't know if you get if you get pedicures, uh, Josh or Stefan, but they're only like fifty five dollars. So why would you? Why would you? You know, I guess have like some sort of uh, mental block and going to a, a pedicure, pedicures or nail shop and getting getting it taken care of, and instead of you know missing a game because of an ingrown toenail or something like that. Well, Candace, your work is also service journalism. I hope that NBA players will read it and get over the stigma of, uh, of, of, of avoiding a pedicure, stigma of the pedicure. It is a, it is a, a, a tremendous work. Uh, thank you for your contribution. Um, we will post a link to your story. We'll post a link to, uh, to the reasons that basketball players have bad feet. I found a, 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 an article on the website of Rocky Foot and Ankle, rockyfootandankle.com podiatrist's website and we'll also post of course a link to the slideshow of those 17 gnarly feet candace buckner covers the wizards for the washington post her story is fancy footwork why nba players love pedicures candace thanks for coming on the show thanks for having me fellas can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when he did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Now it is time for the afterball. Uh, Stefan, we were just talking about feet, and I was looking up feet on uh, newspapers.com, as, as I do. And I found this uh, a pretty story. broad search. You just plugged in feet, plugged it in, uh, did some did some searching. Uh, I found a story from the Call Leader of Elwood, Indiana, April seventh, nineteen thirty nine. For those of you who are not familiar with that item, um, the small segment of this podcast who who does not have that one on display, um, there was a, a little squib that that read. Win or lose, the basketball season at Marquette University was not a success as far as the students were concerned. Reason, the annual story about the player with the biggest feet had failed to materialize. All the players' feet had been measured and turned out, quote, just average. Hmm. Rough year for uh, uh, outlier feet in the Marquette basketball program. But then, when all appeared lost, student manager Les Krupa of the varsity came to the rescue with a pair of quote dogs that measured size 14. So thank you to Les Krupa for saving uh, the season and we will honor you and your size 14 dogs. This is uh, the 1939-40 season or 38-39? Uh, this was April 7th, 1939. So I don't know. I guess 39-ish. Because hmm. I'm looking. I'm curious to see how the Golden Eagles did that year. I mean, it might have been foot-related. They were 12-5. and five. Yeah. They had a good season under Bill Chandler. <laughs> Congratulations on finding something and reading, reading from it, just Thank as you. I did. Uh, Stefan, what is your Les Krupa? Seconds ticking away. Denmark about to be crowned. The new world champions. 
Yes, Josh, that was the call at the end of Denmark's 31-22 victory over Norway on Sunday to win the 2019 World Team Handball Championship. The game was a beatdown by the host nation, as was the entire tournament. The Danes went 10-0 in the semifinal. They scored 21 goals in the first half against France, which I am told is... uh, Pretty crazy by handball standards. The championship solidified Denmark's claim as handball titan of the world. It is now the only country whose men's and women's teams have each won all three major international crowns, worlds, Euros, and Olympics. And Denmark also boasts Holger Nielsen, a gym teacher who in 1898 wrote down what is believed to be the first set of rules for team handball. Nielsen, Josh, was a renaissance man. You want to jump in here? Naismith was a gym teacher, right? Yeah. If you're a gym teacher and you're not inventing a sport, what are you even doing? That's what I'm saying. Go ahead. Tell us about the Renaissance man. According to a story the other day by Ben Hamilton in the English language Copenhagen Post, Nielsen wanted to be a doctor, but at age 15, instead, he entered the army. He rose to the rank of colonel, and he became an expert in shooting and fitness. He wound up teaching at the Ordrup Latin Og Real School north of Copenhagen. Sounds like a fine school. Uh, He wouldn't let his students play soccer because it was apparently too dangerous. The field at the school also was too small for association football, so he created his own rules for a game in which the kids would throw the soccer ball into a net. Nielsen called this game handbold, which I think is Danish for handball. He didn't invent the game. Similar ball-throwing games date back centuries, and there were other modern versions elsewhere. But writing down the rules is important. Just ask your friend James Naismith, Josh, or Alexander Cartwright. Yeah. You get a lot of credit for writing shit down. (laughs) Over time, like history's other most important people, Nielsen kept tinkering with the rules. He published them in 1906 in a volume titled Veldening i Handbold, which I believe is Danish for instructions for handball. The Copenhagen Post story reports that Nielsen's school won the first official handball game 21 to nothing over another school whose coach, Lieutenant Rasmus Nikolai Ernst, Peterson complained afterward because they used Nielsen's rules and not his own. Instead of whining, maybe coach him up better next time, Lieutenant Rasmus Nikolai Ernst Peterson, right? All right, our hero Nielsen, though, was more than a handball pioneer, Josh. At the 1896 Olympics in Athens, he won three medals in fencing and shooting. He also competed in the discus and perhaps almost as important as recording the handball rules. In 1932, Nielsen developed a method of external cardiopulmonary resuscitation. That's right, CPR, Josh. I found a paper titled The Holger Nielsen Method of Artificial Respiration, which was written by Thomas F. Basket of the Obstetrics and Gynecology Department at Dalhousie University in Halifax, Nova Scotia, published in 2007 in Resuscitation, the official journal of the European Resuscitation Council. Wow, the official journal. You don't want those unofficial journals circulating. You want to get in the official journal. It explains that Nielsen came up with the Holger Nielsen method as a, when he was a physical fitness instructor in the Danish army. He had studied life-saving techniques, but he was unsatisfied with the existing popular techniques, the Sylvester and Schaefer methods, because of the potential for the tongue 
to block the airway in one and the lack of an active inspiratory phase, taking a breath, in the other. Nielsen came up with a technique in which the victim was placed face down with elbows bent and hands placed under his forehead. The CPR operator then pressed down on the victim's shoulder blades, forcing an expiration, and then pulled up on the bent elbows, forcing an inspiration. Nielsen said he got the idea while getting a massage. I am pretty sure that Alexander Cartwright or James Naismith or any of these other sports inventor Johnny-come-latelys did not invent a technique for saving people's lives, which proves the point that team handball is the best sport around. The thing that was stuck in my head the whole time you were (laughs) reading that was just the phrase, Colonel Handball. That's my name for this guy. Colonel Handball? Yeah. It could stick. I think it will. Josh, what's your less Krupa? Feet, Stefan. Feet is my less Krupa. Uh, the guy who legendarily had the biggest feet in the NBA was Bob Lanier, who played 14 seasons in the 70s and 80s for the Pistons and the Bucks. One of the first stories I found about him and his feet was published in 1970 when he was still in college at St. Bonaventure. It said he wore size 20 uh, sneakers, and Lanier said, my feet seem to get more publicity than the rest of me. Last season, a lot of sports writers wrote funny things about my big feet. And the next thing I know, the Hall of Fame people in Springfield, Mass, are on the phone asking me if I would send them a pair of my sneakers. His coach said, sure, send them a pair. And I did. Now people tell me they've got those sneakers on public display. I haven't seen them myself yet, but this summer I'll take a trip there. And while I'm at it, maybe I'll tell those people that someday I'd like to have the rest of me in their Hall of Fame, too. The entirety of Bob Lanier did make the Hall of Fame in 1992. But for most of his career, people were mostly interested in the foot stuff. In 1976, the LA Times' Jim Murray wrote that Lanier was on the CBS postgame show one afternoon after an outstanding day on the court and a, quote, girl reporter only wanted to try on his shoes. She disappeared into them. Bob Lanier disappeared too. He threw the shoes against the wall and walked out. Murray, it doesn't really make any sense if she was wearing the shoes. How could he throw them against the wall? But anyway, uh, Murray went on to say, if Bob had any sense of shoe business, if the late P.T. Barnum had him, he would probably begin wearing shoes two sizes or more too large for him. He would edge them in neon or loud colors. He would sell advertising on the soles. When your shoes can rival the Declaration of Independence, the Adams Chronicles, or Lincoln's shawl as a national monument, your feet belong to the world. Although it took him a while, Lanier did eventually adopt Murray's worldview. A decade later, he told uh, Jim Murray again, who uh, was not averse to uh, repeating a column. Uh, as you mature, you get rid of your hangups. When you write seven a week, Josh, you're going to repeat once in a while. It's true. Uh, as you mature, you get rid of your hangups. I realized people were motivated by curiosity and kindness that there was affection in their inquiries about my feet. I chose to take it as a personal affront because I thought it detracted from my basketball accomplishments. You see, I was trying to achieve status as a basketball player. I was coming off knee injuries. And when I would play well, all I would read is some jokes about my feet. But in 1986, when that Murray column ran, the second one, it was Lanier himself who was making jokes in a light beer commercial with Dave Cowens. Let's listen. Since I hung up my size 19 sneakers, Dave and I always get together for a few Miller Lights. And argue about who was the greatest player. You were the greatest. No, Bob, you were. At least we agree Lights taste is the greatest. 
Yep, lights also less filling, and you can't afford to get filled up when you're the great Bob Lanier. Come on, Dave. You won the MVP and the championship. Those were the two biggest feats in basketball. No, Bob. Those were the two biggest feats in basketball. <laughs> For the biggest taste, there's only one light beer, Miller Lite. Now, Stefan, I did not say they were good jokes. I just said that they were jokes. I just want to say that I really thought those commercials were all very funny when they aired when I was a child. Ha, 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 ha. That was incredibly unfunny. Oh, my God. Um, Bob Lanier needed uh, better writers, but he uh, it's good to know that he developed a sense of humor about his feet. You might have noticed that during the segment, I have described his feet, uh, and he has described his feet as being size 19, size 20, and size 22. There's not that much consistency. But no. It, but in a 2007 piece for the New York Times, it was an as told to that Lanier uh, quote unquote wrote. Um, he described his feet as being size 22. And he told a very strange story about being on an airplane. He says, as much as I enjoy traveling, a real drawback is my size. He likes to get an aisle seat. I can certainly relate to that. As a taller gentleman, he wants to snag an aisle seat so I can stick my feet out. I enjoy the chance to shake someone's hand or chat with them about basketball. I sometimes find it embarrassing to show off my big feet to strangers. I remember a few years ago while flying to L.A. to go to a Lakers game, he gets settled in, wanted the plane to take off. I didn't pay attention to the young man sitting next to me. This guy is talking to him for 10 minutes. He's talking about his NBA history. He knows highlights of his own career. I told him he seemed to know a lot about basketball. It turned out to be Leonardo da Vinci. No, wait, I mean DiCaprio. DiCaprio doesn't actually ask him about his feet. The feet don't even come up. He just wants to talk about his career. So I'm not actually sure that Bob Lanier has gotten over the feet, the foot thing. Stefan? No, probably not. Bob, you're a great player. We love you. The feet are fun, too. We love the feet. We love love the entirety of Bob Lanier. Just keep your shoes on. If we learn anything on this podcast, keep your shoes on. That is our show for today. Our producer is Patrick Fort. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us. We are at hangup at slate.com. For Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. was boring hello then judy discovered chumbacasino.com it's my little escape now judy's the life of the party oh baby mama's bringing home the bacon whoa take it easy judy the chumba life is for everybody so go to chumbacasino.com and play over a hundred casino style games join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes chumbacasino.com no purchase necessary void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply see website for details Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. 
It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.